Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton and you are listening to Rules-Based Disorder here on Colin. As always, I invite anyone listening to this episode to go ahead and join the queue and I'll take questions and we can have a chat. I like to make these a discussion. But I'm still waiting for people to go ahead and join the room. We have a several we have several people here, but I'm sure more will come in. So while I'm waiting, um, anyone, again, feel free to join the queue, but I'm going to talk a, a, about a few different issues, um, including the election in Colombia. I also want to talk about Biden appointing a neoliberal who wants to privatize Social Security to oversee Social Security, which should be a huge scandal. And there's a few other things I want to talk about, but I'm going to start with the election in Colombia. Now, if anyone follows my work at multipolarista.com, you've probably seen I've been doing a lot of coverage of the election in Colombia. This is very significant. I've talked about Colombia in some past episodes. This is one of the closest U.S. allies, not just in Latin America, but around the world. Many people in Latin America refer to Colombia basically as a kind of U.S. colony. Hugo Chavez, the former president of Venezuela who launched the Bolivarian Revolution, famously referred to Colombia as the Israel of Latin America, he said, just reflecting the fact that Israel in West Asia plays the role of the U.S. proxy waging war on all of Washington's enemies, and Colombia plays a very similar role. Colombia has several U.S. military bases. The exact number, I don't, I'm not sure is, I'm not sure if it's public because I've seen estimates. Some people say seven. Some people say nine U.S. military bases in Colombia. The Colombian military is very closely linked to the U.S. military and the Colombian military leadership is trained by the U.S. military and they coordinate very closely. In, at the beginning of this year, in early 2022, Colombia and the U.S. military did exercises in the Caribbean Sea off of the coast of Venezuela. And it was the first time that the Colombian Navy ever did a military exercises with a nuclear submarine. That was, of course, a U.S. nuclear submarine. So they coordinate very closely. And that's why it's extremely significant that left-wing candidate Gustavo Petro won the election. And for people who want more information on that, I, I wrote an analysis of it at multipolarista.com. And I also did a 20-minute a video and podcast. And then yesterday on the 20th, I did an interview, a lengthy interview with a Venezuelan journalist, uh, Jesus Rodriguez Espinosa, who is the editor of Orinoco Tribune, one of the best English language news outlets reporting on Latin America. And I wanted to get his perspective as a left-wing Venezuelan, as a Chavista, on Petro's election. And we also talked about U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and Venezuela's 20-year cooperation agreement with Iran. So if people want to get more information, they can check those out. I'm not going to go too in-depth here, but I do want to raise a few things that is a few points that have happened in the past few days. First of all, the right wing in Colombia is freaking out, and it's it's pitiful. The former president, Alvaro Uribe Vélez, who has dominated Colombian politics for 20 years, he first came to power in 2002, and he was president for two terms. And then there was another right wing president who actually ended up breaking with him, Santos. And then after that, we have the current president, Ivan Duque, who was handpicked by Uribe. He was basically Uribe's disciple. So Uribismo, the right-wing movement named after Uribe, has dominated Colombian politics for 20 years. And Petro's victory is also a massive defeat for Uribe and his movement. And Uribe gave this insane speech. In It, it went viral in on social media in Latin America. And in this speech, Uribe is basically crying. I mean, he's very close to crying. He's freaking out. And then he says, this is such a disaster. This is such a disaster. He said, I was wrong. I didn't realize how the entire time 
Petro was the, the the real brains behind the the neo-communist movement in Latin America. He calls it neo-communist, which is hilarious. And then he says Petro is going to be the worst neo-communist of them all. He said Uribe said I never realized that it was Petro who taught Chavez, <laughs> which is insane, as if. Hugo Chavez was a product of Gustavo Petro. Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it shows how deranged and out of touch the Colombian right-wing oligarchy is. They are really, they live on another planet. All they do is communicate with other fellow elites and, you know, people in Miami. And so the fact that he thought that Gustavo Petro could have been an influence on Chavez is so insane. It's also ridiculous because Petro is really a center-left politician. He's kind of part of the mainstream Colombian political class. He was the mayor of Bogota. And no, the world didn't end. He didn't impose neo-communism. And he also has been a senator. I mean, like, he's not, he's not this radical revolutionary that he's portrayed as. And yes, Petro was in his youth a member of an armed socialist movement, M19. He was a guerrilla. But he put down his arms, and that was a long time ago. That was decades ago when he was a young revolutionary. There are so many cases of young revolutionaries who become more moderate in their politics and enter the political class. I mean, Dilma Rousseff, uh, Pepe Mujica in Uruguay. There are many examples. So the idea that he's like this, uh, you know, firebrand revolutionary is going to expropriate the wealth of the capitalist class is extremely exaggerated, but it shows how out of touch the Colombian oligarchy is. And of course, not just the Colombian oligarchy, there was also this insane speech given by uh, the current governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who is a major leader in the Republican Party. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of discussion of him potentially becoming president if Trump doesn't run. Now, I think Trump is going to run. I don't know why people keep saying he's not going to. I mean, I'm sure his health is very bad. That guy eats McDonald's every day and does no exercise and just watches Fox News. But, I mean, if he's alive, if he has a heartbeat, if they can use science and machines to keep him alive, I think he's going to run. And I also, unfortunately, I do think he's also going to win, by the way. But that aside, if Trump is not running... There's a lot of discussion of Ron DeSantis being the Republican candidate. And he has been portrayed by some people absurdly as a populist or even a libertarian. So Ron Paul has praised Ron DeSantis, which is insane because DeSantis is a complete neocon who boasted about illegalizing BDS, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement against Israel in Florida. And he boasted about making it basically illegal. Public officials can't support BDS. And if you speak in in the state, like at a university or something, then you have to sign a loyalty oath pledging not to boycott Israel. And yet he's portrayed as a libertarian and a populist. Glenn Greenwald has even praised Ron DeSantis. I mean, it's ridiculous. He's a complete neocon. And in addition to his strong support of apartheid Israel, his support for illegalizing BDS, he also constantly works with the far-right anti-Cuba, anti-Nicaragua, anti-Venezuela lobby in Miami. And he has openly called for regime change in Cuba and Venezuela. He supported Juan Guaido. I mean, this is, there's nothing libertarian about him. I mean, he opposes basic science, so that's... And pu- he opposes public health measures, so... Then he's portrayed as a libertarian because there's this bizarre idea that if you oppose public health, then you're like for freedom. So anyway, he, he, he had this press conference yesterday on the 20th and he tweeted as well. And I'll just read what his tweet said. And he was talking about the election in Colombia and he, he was appealing to right wing Colombian Americans in Florida. And he said, quote, the election in Colombia of a former narco-terrorist Marxist is troubling and disappointing. The spread of left-wing totalitarian ideology in the Western Hemisphere is a growing threat. 
Florida stands with Colombian Americans on the side of freedom. Once again, it just shows how much of a neocon this guy is. I mean, he sounds like John Bolton referring to Petro as a narco-terrorist Marxist, which is hilarious because one, the leading narcos in Colombia, the leading drug dealers are the right-wing oligarchs that have dominated the country for 20 years, including the top capo, Uribe himself, a key ally of the U.S., who was given top awards, top honors by the Bush administration, a close friend of George W. Bush. Uribe has been closely working with drug cartels for many decades, most famously the Medellin cartel, and his family is also very closely linked to death squads and paramilitary groups in Colombia, including his family ranch, where it was the headquarters for a notorious drug trafficking cartel, uh, drug trafficking paramilitary group called the 12 Apostles. So the idea that the Colombian left is behind the drug trade is, is another example of this insane propaganda trying to link people like Petro to drug trafficking and not the actual drug traffickers who have run the country for decades. And I should say that, that David Frum, the neoconservative war criminal, former speechwriter for George W. Bush, an Iraq war supporter, he wrote an article in the Atlantic magazine, just a complete rag, a mouthpiece of the imperialist ruling class. And in The Atlantic, David Frum refers to Ivan Duque, the current far-right drug trafficking president of Colombia, as a moderate. He says he's a moderate, and David Frum, Frum laments that in the Colombia election, the two choices in the second round on, on June 19th were between what he refers to as a former Marxist guerrilla and a far-right businessman, businessman who praised Adolf Hitler. Now, that's true. Uh, the far-right candidate in the second round, Rolo Fernandez, he did refer to himself as a follower of Adolf Hitler, although he later said that he mistake, he, that was a mistake and he accidentally, he claimed Adolf Hitler was supposed to be Einstein. He confused Hitler with Einstein. I mean, I don't know how someone does that. But anyway, the point is that, I mean, the idea that Duque is somehow a moderate really reflects the, reflects the insane brain rot in the, in the ruling class in the U.S. And it leads them to this ridiculous worldview that the left is responsible for drug trafficking and not their own right-wing allies in Colombia that have been doing this for decades. So I just wanted to, to reflect on the kind of the freak out among the right-wing oligarchs in Colombia and also the ruling class in the U.S. Because, again, Petro is a center-left politician. Honestly, I don't expect very much from him. I, and I talk about that in my reporting, all the obstacles he's facing from the oligarchy, from the military, from the paramilitaries, from the Congress, which is dominated by the right wing. The idea that he's like yet another Hugo Chavez yet alone, you know, someone even more radical, is nonsense. It's complete nonsense. So I just wanted to do an update on that because the right-wing freakout has been pretty funny and I haven't reported that on that yet. It's just kind of funnier to talk about in like a podcast form. Um, I do want to... and So people should join the queue here and I'll start responding to questions. But while I'm waiting for people to join the queue, I'm just going to mention something else very important. And that's the story that I mentioned at the beginning, that as David Sirota has reported, Biden nominated a longtime advocate of social security privatization to the board overseeing social security. So this is disastrous. I mean, and it says everything for me because the Democratic Party, they have constantly sold themselves as the more moderate voice that will save people from the extremism of the GOP. And I'm not in any way disputing that the GOP is an extremist, far-right, fascistic party. It is. But the Democrats continue to show how similar they are to the extremists in the GOP. And Biden is now moving toward potential privatization of Social Security, just as the Democrats said, you have to vote for us 
because if the extremist Republicans keep winning, then they're going to they're going to end Roe v. Wade and make abortion illegal in half of the U.S. And they were right about that, but they were wrong about voting for them stopping it because Biden's president and they're still going to do it. The Democrats have done nothing to, to defend Roe v. Wade when Obama had the opportunity to incorporate Roe v. Wade into law. He, he didn't do so. He could have done so through in Congress when he had a majority in both chambers of Congress and he didn't do so. And similarly, one of the other talking points is, well, you have to constantly vote for Democrats because the extremist Republicans are going to privatize Social Security. Well, now Biden just appointed someone who wants to privatize Social Security to oversee Social Security. And by the way, this is this is in all of it. I mean, this is a huge part of the scandal. So this guy, his name is Andrew Biggs. He's a complete right-wing neoliberal. He is also a fellow at the Koch Brothers-funded conservative think tank, American Enterprise Institute. So, I mean, this guy is a Republican. So the fact that Biden is even nominating him shows once again this ridiculous, nonsensical idea that Democrats will not drop of trying to collaborate with right-wing Republicans in a mutual goal toward destroying anything good remaining in the U.S. But another huge scandalous part of this is that this guy, Andrew Biggs, who Biden just appointed to oversee Social Security, which he wants to privatize, he's also a member of the Junta in Puerto Rico. The Junta is the Fiscal Management and Oversight Board imposed by the U.S. federal government on Puerto Rico, which is a colony. It was not elected by the people of Puerto Rico. It's called the Junta, even on the official U.S. government website, which is incredible because Junta is usually used to refer to like a military Junta, a Junta Militar. So after like a, a military coup, the military dictator often creates a Junta. And if you go to the U.S. government website for the Fiscal Oversight Board, it calls it a junta. So that 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 itself is incredible. I mean, this is a complete neo-colonial board. But now this guy, Andrew Biggs, this right-wing ideologue from the American Enterprise Institute who wants to privatize Social Security, he's a member of the unelected Fiscal Control Board overseeing Puerto Rico. He, by the way, is not Puerto Rican. He has no ties to Puerto Rico. He's a white American guy, right winger. And he has been responsible for helping to create these brutal austerity measures that have been imposed on Puerto Rico for years now and is sucking the, the, the colony dry and the people of Puerto Rico dry in order to, to pay these odious debt bondholders, the, the, big U.S. corporations and banks and bondholders that are exploiting Puerto Rico. They have this odious that the country has been trapped in. The country, well, it should be a country. I mean, the colony has been trapped in by corrupt neoliberal politicians who use these use this debt to enrich their themselves and then didn't use the money to actually create jobs and infrastructure and social programs. So as part of this fiscal oversight board policy of trying to to pay the vulture capitalists sucking Puerto Rico dry, Andrew Biggs and the other members have been cutting wages, cutting Social Security in Puerto Rico. They're, you know, cutting retirement, um, retirement pensions, retirement funds, cutting education, the the Puerto Rican government's education spending has been nearly halved and there's been massive protests at universities condemning this, these massive cuts. And they also privatized Puerto Rico's electrical grid, which is incredible because they said that it would be more efficient, more efficient, they said. And what has happened? There have been constant blackouts ever since the Puerto Rico ever, ever since Puerto Rico's electrical grid was privatized to a, a U.S. Canadian company called Luma Energy, and the 
the president of Luma Energy and the other top executives of Luma Energy make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. That's money that's been taken from the Puerto Rican people. So the top executives are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And meanwhile, half of Puerto Ricans live in poverty, including 57% of children in Puerto Rico live in poverty. This is the brutal violence of colonialism. It might not be blatantly visible. It's certainly not reported in mainstream media, but over half of children in Puerto Rico and roughly half of the population live in poverty. And meanwhile, the Biden administration continues these bipartisan policies of sucking Puerto Rico dry and those same policies, those neoliberal austerity policies imposed on Puerto Rico, always come home. The crimes and policies that the U.S. empire carries out abroad, abroad always come home. And I'm just going to quote here a tweet from a really good Puerto Rican activist named Andrew Padilla. And Andrew Padilla tweeted his, um, his Twitter username is A Padilla Film 6. And he said, colonies are always laboratories for the empire. Fresh off his tour imposing deadly austerity in Puerto Rico, Biden just nominated Andrew Biggs, a member of the U.S. colonial junta that controls Puerto Rico, to the board overseeing the U.S. social security system. So for me, again, that says everything. The policies that the U.S. carries out in colonies like Puerto Rico eventually come back to the mainland and are imposed on the country. And I mean, I just don't know what to say at this point because we constantly, we had Obama do the same thing. They constantly appoint these Republicans to oversee these very important programs. And then they act so surprised when a Republican would never do the same thing because the reality is that, yeah, the Republican party is a far right extremist party it also understands how to wield power, whereas the Democrats, they clearly don't believe in any kind of transformational left-wing project. They are a right-wing, corrupt, neoliberal party. And they also don't know how to wield power, which is why we're in this situation, because all they do is compromise and try to meet the far-right Republicans midway and appoint right-wing, neoliberal, privatizers who want to privatize Social Security to oversee Social Security. And then they act like the Republicans, you know, are are going to suddenly become moderates and and look past partisanism and work with the Democratic Party. No, I mean, this is this is what's going to destroy not only, you know, the political structures of the U.S., but U.S. society. I mean, it's really it's really sad. <laughs> so sorry to end on that extremely pessimistic note, but it just. I don't know how this doesn't infuriate other people. It really shows once again that Biden is just continuing this bipartisan neoliberal hell. But anyway, with that said, I'm, I invite anyone who's listening to go ahead and join the queue. And if anyone has any questions, I'll go ahead and respond to some for like maybe 20 more minutes. So I guess it's, it's not as lively today as usual, but uh, I'll, here's Mike, great regular caller. Go ahead, Mike. Hey, Ben. How's good, good. How about you? I'm doing well. I was just going to listen today, but I agree. It's, it doesn't seem like a very lively um, day for some reason. I think maybe because yesterday was off, so today's kind of like Monday, at least for folks here in the U.S., um, or maybe every all the depressing news that you just talked about <laughs> have people uh, in the mood. Um, I just had a re really random uh, question about the military in Nicaragua. I saw a report, uh, was it last week, end of last week, um, where they signed an agreement with Russia, allowing Russian military to come in and use uh, the ports and train the Nicaraguan military, not having a permanent uh, base, obviously. Um, I think it goes against the Constitution. But, um, w yeah, how 
how small or large is the military in Nicaragua? And like, as I look back, at least the recent coups in Latin America, specifically the one in, well, pretty much everyone, but like Bolivia, it always comes down to like the last moment, like the top generals kind of, uh, you know, becoming traitors and turning on the, on the president, uh, in this case, Evo Morales. But I'm curious, how is the military viewed? Is it drawn from, in, in Nicaragua, is it drawn from, you know, working class people? I'm assuming that they're not sending their generals to train in America. Um, but again, that's just an assumption. Um, so yeah, what is uh, your perception of the military? I know their budget's probably very, very small, but they're obviously uh, making agreements with Russia, which uh, has a history of, um, let's call it democratic security, right? With Specifically with Venezuela, I know they played a large role when it came to military technical security reasons, uh, uh, purposes in, you know, basically protecting... Uh, Maduro and, you know, the Venezuelan state from uh, terrorist actions, uh, not just with weapons, but intelligence, other other areas as well. So, yeah, what is what is your perception of the uh, military in Nicaragua? Yeah, well, good question. And I think you hit the nail on the head, especially when looking at the case in Bolivia. That was one of the key factors in the coup in November 2019. Um, I'm just going to mute you because of the background noise. Sorry. Sure. Just uh, um, So in in the case of Bolivia, Evo Morales, who I think is honestly one of the most important left-wing leaders in the world and certainly in the modern history of Latin America. I mean, I don't say this as a criticism of Evo. I think he his role has been extremely positive. He is an incredible leader. He accomplished a lot of amazing things. He's, he's often not seen at the same level as someone like maybe Hugo Chavez and certainly Fidel, but I think his influence is up there. I, I, I would consider him on par with like the great left wing leaders like Fidel and Chavez and Ortega and Evo. But one of the things, again, this isn't a criticism, just understanding the balance of power in Bolivia is that Evo came from the social movements and he was a coca farmer and one of the reasons that he was able to come to power and was very popular and and served for three terms as president is because he had a constant base of support among not only the indigenous community, which is the majority of Bolivia, but also among the agricultural sector. And of course, many of them, potentially most of the farmers and campesinos in Bolivia are indigenous, but they're not necessarily the same thing, right? Like there are indigenous people who aren't farmers and there are farmers who aren't indigenous. But anyway, Evo comes from the agricultural movement and the agricultural movement in Bolivia is very well organized into union federations and is very radical. And he created the, he was involved in the creation of the MAS party, the movement towards socialism party. The full name of that is MAS, M-A-S-I-P-S-P, which stands for movement towards socialism hyphen the political instrument for the sovereignty of the peoples. And the idea was that Evo coming out of the social movements would, would lead this political party that was the political instrument of the social movements based largely in the countryside. So that was a brilliant model for taking power and holding on to power. And it still does, but there was one weakness to it. And that is that it had very little to no support in the military. So Evo, of course, is a very smart guy. He understood this was a big problem for him. And when he was president, he did go out of his way to try to bring in indigenous people and poor people and people from the countryside into the military, encouraging them to join and providing social benefits and programs. But the military leadership was always very much dominated by kind of European descendant elites and I mean, you, you can see this with their names. The the head of the Bolivian military during the coup, the, the top general who helped oversee the coup, who was allegedly working with the U.S. and was allegedly paid over a million dollars by the U.S., his name was Williams Kaliman. 
So, I mean, you know, he, he was, he has European descendants. Uh, he very much was, is part of like this kind of lighter skinned elite in Bolivia that, that does not really have indigenous ancestry. And that doesn't mean that they can't have good politics, but many of them, of course, are very racist against the indigenous majority. They don't consider themselves really to be like, to this, the same, of the same nation, right? Like there's, there, racism in Latin America is not the same as in the US, but there very much is racism, especially in a country like Bolivia, where there are so many indigenous people that, and we saw this with Janina Añez, the dictator who became the figurehead after the coup. She had tweeted insane things and you, it also shows how the racism is tied up with Chris, Christian extremism. She referred to the indigenous majority as satanic and said that, that indigenous people should go back to the countryside and all this stuff. So in Bolivia, that was a, that was a significant factor in the coup. And really, even now with Arce, he has a very uneasy relationship with the military and it's, a constant problem for him and he has to constantly appease the military because he knows they could do another coup. So in the, in Bolivia, that was, that's, that's a constant thorn in the side of the MAS party in other countries in Latin America that had more, more traditional revolutions in the sense that they kind of remade the state because Evo never really had a revolution. He was elected in and he kind of reformed the state in many very good, important ways, but he wasn't able to create the army from scratch. Whereas the Sandinistas were able to do that. The military in Nicaragua after the 1979 revolution was remade. And of course, another big difference is that Evo had no experience in the military, whereas the Sandinistas came to power as an armed movement and they created the military with that, that experience. And then of course, you know, there were problems of Sandinista leaders who became Contra commanders and all of that. But the reality is still that the, the military structure in Nicaragua was remade and it remains a nationalist military. And especially since Ortega came back through democratic elections in 2006 and entered office in 2007, they, the Sandinista front has cultivated a strong base of support in the military providing a lot of social benefits for people in the military and the national police, also encouraging and not only encouraging, but mandating uh, women's representation. So that's very clear, especially in the police. You see a lot of women who are represented and not only at the grunt level, but in the, the officer leadership core. So the military in Nicaragua remains very much a kind of loyal nationalist military. That doesn't mean that Obviously, everyone in the military is like a, is an ideological leftist, but they see the military as an instrument to defend national sovereignty. Nationalism is very prominent and national pride and nationalism is it's a very progressive nationalism defined in opposition to imperialism. And we have to go back really to the history of Nicaragua for over a 100 years of being invaded at least three times by the U.S. military, including the U.S. military overthrew the popular nationalist progressive liberal leader of Nicaragua, President Zelaya, Jose Santos Zelaya, who tried to unify Central America and the U.S. military invaded and overthrew him in 1909. And then the U.S. military occupied the country for three decades. And then Agosto Sandino created a guerrilla army to wage a war against the U.S. military occupiers. So Nicaraguan national identity is is in many ways defined as opposition to imperialism and the foreign, you know, colonialists who have always tried to, to control the country. So in that sense, the the military is very much a base of support for Sandinismo. And then finally, as for the agreement that was signed with Russia, this is obviously being exaggerated, although there are elements of it that are new. So the Nicaraguan military and the Russian military have always had, not always, but for years now, they've had a cooperation agreement. So, and, and part of this was actually just renewing what already existed before. But in the context of the proxy war in Ukraine, of course, there's a lot more attention to Russia. 
And it's part of this narrative that like Russia is, is, is creeping into the so-called U.S. backyard or Biden calls it the U.S. front yard. This very colonialist mentality. We saw Brian Nichols, who's the head of Latin America at the State Department, refer to this as a Russian threat in our region. So again, this kind of colonialist mentality. But there, there are developments that are new about this, and, and especially with the, the Navy, with the Russian Navy and the Nicaraguan Navy. And although if you look at the actual agreement, so again, Nicaragua's military was renewing an agreement that already existed with Russia, but also expanding the agreement while they renewed it. And it allows 230 Russian soldiers. <laughs> so, I mean, the U.S. military has had 40 to 50,000 plus. I mean, the last estimate I saw, I think, was 55,000 troops in Japan since 1945. 55,000. The U.S. military has 28,000 in South Korea. So Nicaragua signed an agreement for 230 Russian soldiers. I mean, the hypocrisy is unbelievable, not to mention the fact that, as you pointed out, Mike, I mean, Russia is not making a military base. They are collaborating with the Nicaraguan military. They're training the, the Nicaraguan military. And the Nicaraguan military is not very big. So to answer the other part of your question, it's not, it's not that big. And a lot of what the military does in Nicaragua, in addition to, you know, basic security issues. So for instance, El Salvador recently in a very strange and provocative act, it sent a warship into Nicaraguan, um, waters, which was very strange. And there were allegations that, that the U.S. was pressuring the El Salvadorian military to, to do that. I mean, who knows? Bukele is a very strange, un, uh, unpredictable character. But anyway, Aside from that, I mean, the Nicaraguan military is also involved in a lot of civil projects. So, for instance, they just announced this big project to plant trees. And they're planting thousands and thousands of trees across the country as part of like a green project to, you know, fight climate change. So the Nicaraguan military is not threatening anyone. They exist to defend the national sovereignty of their country. And finally, as you said, I mean... As with the, the Venezuelan military, when the U.S. was threatening to invade Venezuela in 2019 and 2020 at the peak of the coup attempt there, we know that President Trump, on two different occasions at least, he raised the possibility of invading Venezuela. That's according to Mark Esper, who is the Raytheon lobbyist slash Secretary of Defense under Trump. In his memoir, he said that Trump, on two different occasions, said that the U.S. should consider invading Venezuela. And in response to that, Russia sent a few troops and a few planes at the request of the Venezuelan government, basically just saying to the U.S., if you invade us, you're threatening, you're potentially going to threat, uh, risk World War III or setting off a larger conflict if you kill Russian soldiers. So they're just there as like a tripwire, right? And I imagine that's basically the strategy in Nicaragua. The, Nicaragua has been invaded multiple times in the past 100 years by the U.S. military. So if there are 200 Russian soldiers there, it acts also as a kind of tripwire, which is another way just to discourage the U.S. military from from carrying out some kind of invasion or activities. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's my overall view. Good question, Mike. Um, I'm going to go to Andrew now, another great regular caller. Oh, actually, I don't know. This might be a different Andrew. I'm not sure. I think this is a different Andrew, actually. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm <clears throat> I'm actually calling into the show for the first time ever. So, oh, cool. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. Uh, I was actually somewhat uh, slightly ashamed of my name when you mentioned Andrew Biggs, but then you mentioned the other Andrew who <laughs> called out Andrew Biggs. So now There's a really good Andrew who calls in a lot, so okay, don't worry. Cool. Um, so I was going to say, um, you know, I, I saw what, uh, the new president, um, Gabriel Boric, uh, how he has turned out and that he's kind of betrayed the left wing a little bit in recent months. Um, and so I share your skepticism about, um, 
the new president-elect of Colombia. But on the other hand, you know, um, I think back to... So I was born in 1997, so I'm really new to the to discovering all of what's going on. But I've been listening to a bit of older music, and there was a song by Glenn Fry, who used to be in the Eagles, um, called Smuggler's Blues, which has a line about the drug trade. It's propping up the governments in Colombia and Peru. You ask any DEA man, he'll say there's nothing we can do from the office of the president right down to me and you. And it's really cool to see that both Colombia and Peru have in the last couple of years elected left-wing-ish leaders. And I guess I'm slightly optimistic that maybe that line from that song from the 80s was wrong about there being nothing we can do. That's awesome. I, I've actually never heard that song or, or heard read that lyric, but that that's really cool to hear, especially from you know a, a very mainstream musician from like the Eagles. I, and, I, and I will say that um, before I get to Colombia, I'll talk about Peru. I mean, the issue of of the drug trade in Peru doesn't get as much attention as Colombia because Colombia is responsible for over seventy percent of the world's cocaine production. That's a statistic from the United Nations. But the other two major cocaine producers, well, let me take that back. The other two major coca producers, which is not the same thing as cocaine. So I, I should revise what I said. Co um, Colombia is responsible for 70% of coca production, but the vast majority of cocaine production. The other two main producers of coca are Bolivia and Peru. But in the case of Bolivia the vast majority of coca production is not for cocaine. It's for other uses of coca. Coca is similar to, you know, hemp, right? Like not all production of marijuana is for drug use or hemp. That is there. There's also the use for textiles and it's used in even some medicines and other things. Similarly, coca in Bolivia is produced, is produced for a lot of other reasons. And especially it's used for tea it's a very common drink. I mean, uh, any anyone who's ever been to Bolivia, especially if they've been to La Paz or El Alto, everywhere you go, there's coca leaves and it's used for tea or people just chew on them. And that's also because the, al the altitude is so high. Like when I was, I've been to El Alto and La Paz and it was brutal. I mean, I was there for several weeks and the first few weeks I just had constant headaches these awful migraines. I had difficulty sleeping at night because of the very high altitude. And one of the ways people deal with that is by chewing on coca leaves, which have a lot of like, st they're stimulants. It's like drinking coffee. And when you're there, people will like sell you these pills. They're legal. I mean, completely legal. These pills that are basically just caffeine pills. And they say like, like if you have a headache, take these pills. It's just caffeine. So anyway, the point is that in Bolivia, there's a lot of coca production, but also Peru. And that was a, an aside, but Peru um, has a lot of coca production. And there is coca consumption that's not for cocaine, but there also is a significant cocaine trade. And especially if you go back to the, the right-wing governments that have dominated for many years, and especially if you go to Fujimori, Fujimori, who was the, the right-wing dictator who carried out this kind of extermination campaign against the left, and and he dissolved Congress and all of this. He was also linked to the drug trade, which is once again, I mean, it's hilarious. I was talking earlier in this episode about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis referring to Petro as a Marxist, nar a narco-terrorist Marxist, when in reality, the Colombian right wing is infinitely more involved in the cocaine trade. And that's similar in Peru. And another interesting detail about that, you know, I mentioned Bolivia's coca production. So this has been an interesting kind of point used by the U.S. to try to sometimes destabilize Bolivia ever since the rise of Evo Morales by trying to portray the country as like a like a narco regime, which is hilarious because Evo Morales expelled the DEA and expelled the NED, the U.S. National Endowment for Democracy, over their involvement in 
he alleged drug trafficking and a coup attempt against him in 2008 and 2009. And when he did that, Evo Morales, he gave a press conference and he, he held up a book, which is like a classic book I highly recommend to everyone. It's called The Big White Lie by Michael Levine, who was a DEA agent. And he wrote this book about how the CIA in Latin America, because Michael Levine, the DEA agent, oversaw DEA operations in Latin America. He was based in Argentina for a while. And he talks about how the CIA would regularly kill anti-drug operations and allow drug dealers to like do all of these shady things. And in 1980, there was a Bolivia coup led by this far right figure who was also linked to Klaus Barbie, the, the Nazi war criminal who was, who became a CIA asset after world war II. He was also a notorious pedophile. So anyway, after the 1980 coup in Bolivia, the top cocaine trafficker in all of Latin America became the leader of Bolivia and it was a CIA sponsored coup. So, I mean, it's incredible. Just this history is not very well known. Mike Levine, this DEA agent, he, he was so angry about it that he wrote, he just spilled, spilled all the beans in this book. And, you know, he's still kind of an apologist for the DEA because he worked for the DEA and he blames everything on the CIA. And it becomes like this turf battle where he says the DEA is good, but the CIA is bad. Obviously, the DEA has been involved in a lot of this drug trafficking as well. So in the Contra War in Nicaragua in the 1980s, we know that the DEA was involved as well as the CIA in helping the Contras traffic drugs in order to fund the operations against the Sandinistas and also against the FMLN, the socialist guerrillas in El Salvador. And the DEA was involved in sending these private planes to help sneak people out of Costa Rica, these CIA assets who were involved in the drug trade. So it's a really deep, deep, uh, uh, you know, deep thread. It goes very deep. But yeah, I mean, it, it is really reassuring to see how in both Colombia and Peru, although in Peru, Pedro Castillo hasn't really been able to govern, it still is reassuring to see a change in those countries to show that there is possibility of change. Now, I should say that Pedro Castillo, I think he is is a lesson for what what Pedro is probably going to go through because Castillo does not have a majority in the Congress and he has been in power for less than a year and has already faced two impeachment attempts by the Congress. He's unable to accomplish really anything that he wants to do. And similarly, I think Petro is going to be in a very difficult situation like that. But what I can say is that I guarantee you, I would be willing to bet large amounts of money. I'm not a, a, a kind of wagering man, but maybe I should figure out a way to bet large amounts of money that that cocaine production in Colombia under Petro is going to, to drop drastically, very drastically, because the current president, Ivan Duque, who, again, as I said earlier, was described by David Frum in The Atlantic as a moderate. In reality, Ivan Duque is deeply involved in drug trafficking by his mentor, Alvaro Uribe. And in fact, a the, the Colombian prosecutor's office, the top prosecutor's office, which was having like a kind of political battle with Ivan Duque, they published leaked recordings proving that Alvaro Uribe ordered a drug trafficker in Colombia named Nene Hernandez to use drug money to buy votes for Ivan Duque in the last election, which is why Ivan Duque won the last election. So just having, even though these presidents are not going to be able to accomplish much in Peru and Colombia, just having someone in charge who's not a drug dealer is really going to change the situation in the region. So really good, interesting questions. Yeah, I appreciate your answer. And uh, I, I wanted to, I, I guess, to follow up on the parallels between what's been happening to Castillo and what Petro might face. I don't know if it's necessarily going to be impeachment because from what I've read, uh, uh, Peru has kind of had a bit of a reputation for impeaching every single president they've had yeah they've had they've had five presidents in the past three years (laughs) yeah which is insane so i don't know if 
impeachment is necessarily going to be the weapon of choice in uh, Colombia as well, but it's definitely going to be something that we'll need to look out for. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think Petro is going to be impeached, although he could be killed. That's an that's a, a unfortunately a very real possibility in Colombia. Yeah. Well, once again, I really appreciate your answer and all the work that you've done. Thank you, thank you, Andrew. The other other good Andrew. Not all Andrew. Not all Andrews are bad. Um, so I'm gonna. I'll, it's almost an hour, so I'll do a few more minutes here. I'll conclude with one final question, and this is from. A regular caller, Aaron. Go ahead. Hey, Aaron, go ahead. You're muted. Hey, Aaron, you're you're muted. Hey, hello, Aaron. I uh, I, don't, I never know what to do here because I don't want to leave a bunch of dead space, but. <laughs> Aaron, uh, hello, Aaron. You're muted. Well, I was just going to take his question and end the stream because it's already almost an hour, but I guess if he's not going to ask the question, I might just have to wrap up the stream here. So I do want to thank everyone who joined. Um, these. This podcast is also... the. Uh, um, Colin created a feature that allows the podcast to be cross-posted with an RSS feed on Spotify and iTunes and other places. So you can find this podcast on those platforms as well. If you want to listen later on, of course, the only place that you can call in is here on Colin. But I do two of these a week. Today is Tuesday. So I'm probably going to do the other one or I'll definitely, I'm going to do the other one on Thursday on the 23rd. So anyone who wants to Maybe if you were listening and maybe if you have another question that you want to ask, feel free to join on Thursday. And thanks for everyone. Thanks to everyone who listened and I'll see you next time.